Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Our scripture reading today is going to be from Proverbs. We're going to be in a few sections of Proverbs, so bear with me here. First, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. You can either go in your Bible, uh, your Bible apps on your phone, or if you're on your computer on the church website, you can go to the sermon notes for today. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now turn with me to chapter 11, verses 22. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And finally, chapter 30, verse 18 to 20. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, and the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. This is the word of the Lord. All right, who's ready for this sermon? You excited? I know Eric just loved getting to read that scripture. I tried to decide who I should put on scripture reading today, so I put the newly married young man on scripture reading today. So thanks, Eric, for reading that. Uh, We are doing a series in the book of Proverbs, if you're just joining us today. And Proverbs is all about teaching us how to be wise. And wisdom, as we've been talking about, is a skill. It's a skill that all of us need to grow in. None of us are born with it. It's the skill of being able to navigate the many complexities of life and being able to navigate them in such a way that you avoid bringing ruin and destruction into your life. So you avoid foolish decisions, foolish actions. And then positively, you know how to live in such a way that it's going to help your life and not hinder it. And all of this in a way that honors God. So for the first few weeks, what we've done is we've kind of looked at this big theme of wisdom Now, as promised, uh, from now until a few weeks after Easter, we're going to dive into some specific topics that Proverbs wants to address. Specific topics where Proverbs says you need to become wise. You need to grow in this skill of wisdom. And if you've read the book, one of the big ones, and right near the top of the list, is this whole area of sex and beauty. Now, maybe even some of you are already kind of thinking, oh man, do we have to talk about this in church? I mean, that was already a little embarrassing. Reading some of those scriptures before, do we really need to talk about this? Isn't there other things? Listen, if we want to be wise, we cannot ignore this subject. That's what Proverbs Proverbs spends a ton of time on this. Just think practically. Can't you see how many people in our culture, maybe around you, maybe even you, have have brought destruction into their lives through foolish actions in, in this subject? If you do not live rightly in this area, so much damage can happen in your life. I'm sure you've seen it around you, and maybe it's even been in your own life. Not only that, We have to talk about this because our culture is talking about it every second of every day, everywhere you go. There are messages, whether verbally or in pictures or whatever, that are always teaching you our culture's way of viewing this. So if we are to ignore this subject in the church, we're completely not equipping people to live in our modern context. We have to address this. To ignore it would be totally foolish. So, The book of Proverbs is addressed, as we've said, to all people, to people of all ages. But it is particularly addressed to the young. So if you are young, if you're a teenager, a young adult, I mean, of all the subjects that we need to grow in wisdom in, this is surely right near the top of the list. So it's for everyone, but particularly if you are young. So if you're sitting there saying, okay, I get it now. 
We need to talk about it. If you want to grow in wisdom in this whole area of sex and beauty, then Proverbs says you need to understand, we need to understand at least three things. So we're going to talk about three things today. First, how we undervalue sex. Then on the other hand, how we overvalue sex. And then finally, how sex points us to ultimate love and pleasure. Now each week, especially in the weeks to come, I'm going to be recommending books to you. Today I'll recommend two. For those who are more serious about wanting to study Proverbs, I'm not going to recommend this often, but there is a series of commentaries put out by Dr. Bruce Waltke. He is one of the greatest Old Testament scholars on Proverbs. If you're serious about studying it, these are two volumes. They're not cheap, but you might want to pick them up. And then as well, I'll just re-recommend, probably for the last time now, uh, Tim Keller's daily devotional uh, that goes through Proverbs, and I'm borrowing some thoughts from him today as well. So there's some resources for you. All right, who's ready to go? You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's, let's first of all uh, talk about this first thing, which is how we undervalue sex, how we undervalue it. And what I want to show you here, may, you're maybe anticipating where this is going, but you might be not seeing the whole picture. I want to show us how religious people, Christians even, undervalue sex. And I want to show us how secular and liberal people also undervalue sex. And as a result, both conservative religious people and secular liberal people often lack wisdom in their lives. So if you've got a Bible, flip it open to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5 is one of the big chapters on this whole topic. And the first, uh, what is it, the first 14 verses is a father talking to his son. And he's warning him, saying, son, you're going to have many temptations out there in life. And, and don't go engaging in casual sex. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't do that kind of stuff. He's laying out the restrictions for his son, saying, you would be wise not to do these things. He says, they will provide you pleasure. Oh, yes, they will. But it'll be short-term pleasure. And you'll ultimately end up ruining your own life. That's what he does for the first half of the chapter. It's more the negative, how to avoid ruining your life. But then, in the second half of the chapter, he talks about how to enjoy your life, how to find pleasure in this whole area, how to live wisely. So verses 15 to 20, he tells his son how to be wise in this whole area of sexuality. And really, what we have here is nothing less than a great celebration of sex within marriage. It's actually described in pretty erotic terms. Some of you are going to blush. Ready to do it? All right, let's look at verses 15 and 18. Verse 15 says this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing, I should say flowing water from your own well. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed. Now, old, scholar, old Testament scholars like Bruce Walkie, whom I mentioned, all agree that this is all Hebrew poetry, and verse 15 is meant to be a description of female sexuality, and verse 18 is meant to be a description of male sexuality. So, a cistern is a hole that you dig in the ground to store water in. We all know what a well is. Now, here's the question. If you want to be refreshed and enjoy water from a cistern or from a well, how do you do that? Well, obviously, you go into the well. You go into the well. You go into the cistern. Do you get it? That's the female sexuality part. Then verse 18 describes male sexuality in terms of a fountain. And of course, you don't go into a fountain. A fountain puts out water. Do you get it? Who's blushing now? Anyone feel a little embarrassed? Okay. Everyone just take a breath. Just calm. Uh, don't forget, what are we reading here? Is this some book that we picked up in culture? No. What book are we reading? This is the Bible. So if we feel embarrassed about the Bible, keep this in mind. It was God himself who put this in the Bible. God isn't embarrassed to write these words into Scripture. So maybe if we're getting a little embarrassed right now, maybe we're not actually totally on track with what God wants, how God wants us to view and even to talk about male and female sexuality. Well, this kind of erotic language continues in verses 18 and 19, which say this, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts, yep, that was the B word. You heard it in church. That's the Bible. Fill you at all times with delight. And then look at this last phrase. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
That's literally the word drunk. Now, the Bible everywhere says it's a sin to get drunk with alcohol. You should not do that. That's another wise thing you need to learn in life. This will destroy your life. But here in this context, it's saying when it comes to lovemaking between a husband and a wife, you are to be intoxicated. You are to allow the pleasures of it to overtake you, to be overtaken in each other's love. But then notice that amidst all this celebration of sex, it is clearly stated that this is to be enjoyed only within marriage between a man and a woman. Here's what Proverbs 5.15 says. Drink water from your own cistern. That is your own wife. Remember a picture of female sexuality. Flowing, I'm not sure why we keep missing words here, should be flowing water from your own well. Your own spouse. And in this specific, remember, it's a father talking to a son. Son, only with your own wife. That could not be more clear. Verse 16 is the same. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Again, this is a description of male sexuality in terms of a spring that puts out water. And what he's basically saying is, son, you should not be spreading your sexuality out around the city. When you, may, when, when you meet women out in the street and, and you maybe are attracted to them, do not allow your sexuality to go out there. Your sexuality is to remain home with your wife. No casual sex, no affairs. This is not the way of wisdom, son. That's what the Father is saying. So that's the verses so far. Everyone just pause, take a breath. All right, that was the hard part. You made it through. Well done. Let's reflect on this now. This is really quite incredible. The Bible is actually saying that if you want to live wisely in this whole area, then you need to combine combine two attitudes which typically in culture amongst religious and conservative people and secular liberal people are often at odds with one another. And you need to take two attitudes in there and you actually need to combine them. So the Bible does what religious conservative people often never do and what secular liberal people often never do. Because generally speaking, religious conservative minded people will often loudly declare all the restrictions on sexuality but often do not talk or really celebrate the goodness of it. On the flip side, more secular liberal people love to celebrate the pleasure of sexuality, but often never ever speak about any forms of restrictions that go with it. We're going to say later, it gets treated like an appetite that simply needs to be quenched with whomever you like. But I want you to notice, Proverbs combines these two attitudes takes the best of both of them, rejects the worst part of them, and combines them. So this is what I'm going to do. The rest of this first point is to show you these two and to combine them. So first of all, we want to say this. We must be unblushing. I'm choosing that word on purpose. We must be unblushing in our celebration of sexual pleasure within marriage between a man and a woman. We got to be unblushing in our celebration of sexual pleasure within marriage. Isn't that what that past? I mean, this past, there was nothing prudish or conservative about the passage that we just read, was there? Some of you had a hard time with that. But there's nothing really kind of blushing or embarrassing about it. Proverbs just went right into it and absolutely celebrated. This good gift that God has given men and women to enjoy within marriage. There is an unblushing celebration of pleasure there. So we could put it this way then of how we undervalue it. We undervalue sex when we loudly emphasize what should not be done at the expense of celebrating what can be done. So if you're more of that kind of religious, conservative, maybe you grew up in the church, this is probably more of your bent. We, we undervalue sex when we're just loudly saying all the things you should not do, but then we're doing that at the expense of celebrating what can be done, celebrating this as a good gift of God. Now, now some of you are saying, but we need to emphasize the restrictions. Some of you are saying this. Yes, I mean, the father right here, he's saying to his son, could not be more clear, you shall not commit adultery, son. Do not do that. That's what Proverbs 5 is about. He definitely emphasizes the restrictions. But notice, follow the track, track chapter 5. He talks about the restrictions, but then he goes on for quite some time to celebrate this good gift. 
he goes on to instill in his son a positive and unblushing celebration of this pleasure within marriage. So parents, that's the model for you to follow. Here, here is wisdom on raising your kids. You need to do both. Just, just look at the structure of chapter 5. You need to teach your kids this is a good gift of God and celebrating without blushing all about it, as if it's embarrassing, we barely want to talk about this. You need to do that, and you need to teach them the ways that you can destroy yourself. Teach your kids like you teach your kids about fire. Fire is also a good gift of God. I love campfires. I love having our fireplace on in our living room. Fire is a great gift of God. But fire also has boundaries. And if you are a wise person, you'll teach your kids about the boundaries of fire, lest they burn themselves or burn down the house. Same thing. So parents, follow this model. What a great model for us. Let us never undervalue this. Same with maybe you're married. Maybe you were raised in too conservative, too prudish of a home. You need to hear this scripture if you're married, that there's nothing dirty about this, that this is a good gift and God wants you to be intoxicated with your spouse. As in, you're free to enjoy this good gift within marriage. So that's more the, the correction for the conservative, more religious people and their bent. Yet on the other hand, we need to say this. We must be unwavering in our commitment to sex being enjoyed exclusively within marriage. So this then is the correction to the more secular and liberal attitudes toward it. And I want to show you that this truly is the wisest and best way to live. Maybe this is you. You're more in this camp and the way you think. Yes, of course, we can devalue sex by failing to celebrate it. No question. But there's another way that we can devalue it. And in the process, listen, you can dehumanize the very person that you're having sex with. Let me put it this way. Let's have the next slide. We undervalue sex when we treat it as an appetite to be fulfilled by another rather than a giving of one's whole self to another. So this is more the secular liberal side. We've got to hear this, that you undervalue sex when you treat it as an appetite to be fulfilled by somebody else rather than a giving of one's whole self to another. So for this one, I want to take us to another section in Proverbs, which is Proverbs 30, which is not the sayings of Solomon, but a wise man named Agur, the one I recommended as a great boy's name for those of you who are having kids, maybe you got a baby coming along, all right? And this one is a little bit jarring, but where he begins is he begins, like chapter 5, with a great celebration. So let's begin there, and then we're going to see this. So here's what verses 18 and 19 say. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. Hebrew poetry to set up something, to really emphasize the fourth, and the three are to be read through the fourth. Okay, so let's look at the three. First of all, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas. So what is it that makes Agur just stand in awe and stand in wonder. Well, it's the, he's emphasizing the physical movements of these physical bodies or objects, right? Notice he emphasizes the way of an eagle, the way of a serpent, the way of a ship. So it's the way these physical bodies move. But more specifically, it's on these physical bodies and the way they move on or in their environment. So notice, he's standing in awe of the way of an eagle's body and the way that it moves in the sky. He's in awe of the way that a serpent moves so fluidly in its motion on top of a rock. And he's in awe of the way that a ship moves up and down and is in sync with the movements of the ocean underneath it. Now, why is he talking about all this? Well, on one level, he's just in awe of these things. But actually... It's all a setup because I didn't give you the last part. What's the fourth thing? Here's what he writes. The fourth thing is, and the way of a man with a virgin, which is Hebrew poetry, again, to say what he's really standing in awe of is the way the bodies of a man and a woman move together on their wedding night and for the many nights after that. So once again, what we're seeing here 
is this very positive view of sexuality within a marriage relationship. But he does not stop there. He continues, and this part is very jarring. Here's what he says. After all that celebration, he suddenly says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Of course, this could easily apply to men too. It's not just women. This is the way of an adulterer. He eats and wipes his mouth and says, I have done no wrong. So here, what he's doing is he's comparing sex to eating. So just with eating, we have a desire within us. A craving comes up within us to eat a snack. And so we go and we eat our snack and satisfy our craving. In the same way, we have sexual desires that come up within us. And the adulterer or the adulteress just says, I want to go, just as I want to have a physical snack, I want to satisfy my sexual appetite, and so I go and enjoy a sexual relationship, and I have not done anything wrong. This is what the emphasis is. Or to put it another way, uh, when I lived in Vancouver, there was a professor at UBC, and he said that sex, in his opinion, should be viewed like a tennis match. Like a tennis match. In other words, you want to play a tennis game, okay. You pick a partner. You agree to play a game. You enjoy the game, and then you go your separate ways. Same kind of idea, that sex has now become an appetite. But listen carefully to this. We we devalue sex when we view it this way. And in the process, we end up dehumanizing the very person that we are having sex with. How so? Track with me here. When you have sex with someone, you are saying, I want to give you the most intimate part of who I am, And I want the most intimate part of who you are. But if you're having sex and you aren't married, then you're also saying something else. You're holding parts of yourself back. You're still in control of your life. That other person can't control your life. They don't speak into your finances, into your life goals, into maybe if you want to move or decisions that you make. And on the flip side, you're also not taking into account that other person's life and their emotional needs or whatever is going on in their life. So, So listen carefully to this sentence. If you're having sex outside of marriage, you're saying, I want the most intimate part of you, but I don't want you. I want the most intimate part of you, but I don't want you. I don't want your problems. I don't want to have to deal with all your life goals, and I don't have to do with your emotional needs necessarily, except for on a smaller level. I want the most intimate part of you, but I'm not willing to give you all of my life, and I don't want all of your life. That's what we're actually saying. And yet what the Bible is saying to us here is that sex is supposed to be an expression of the giving of one's whole self, because we already know this. I mean, why are so many songs written about the pain of adultery, the pain of breaking up? Because it's the most intimate part of who you are. It's to be connected with the giving of one's whole self to another. So the Bible is saying, if you want the best sex life ever, the best sex life comes when you say to someone else in marriage, I want to give all of myself to you. I'll take on everything to do with you, and I also want the most intimate part of you. So, maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, that's, that's a good correction to just casual sex, but, I mean, I live with my partner. I love my partner. I'm committed to my partner. I live in common law for many years, perhaps. That doesn't really apply to us. I've given a lot of myself. Well, I'm not saying that you don't love your partner, but let's be really honest. You've not given your whole self, have you? Your whole self. You're still holding on to your right to leave at any time. If you're so committed to another person, then why not say, okay, I'm going to be all in. Not 90% in where we live together and share most of the stuff. I'm all in. I want to give you all of myself and I want to take all of you. Instead of saying, I want the most intimate part of you, but I don't want you, you're saying, I want all of you, and I'm going to give everything of myself to you. See, this is the biblical description, and I think we can all sense the goodness of it, that we are giving, that another person, we're giving all to them. We're all in, not just giving the most intimate part of ourselves. So if you're so committed, why not just give your whole self and get married? 
So that's the first thing we need to talk about in Proverbs. The way to understand the way of wisdom is to see how we undervalue sex. So often on both sides, we can undervalue it by only loudly saying all the things that we shouldn't do and not emphasizing the good parts, or we can undervalue it and just treating it like an appetite to be satisfied without giving our whole self to another. And Proverbs is saying you need to combine the, the best of both of these things. That's the biblical view on it. You need to have an unblushing celebration of sex within marriage. And at the same time, we need to be, have an unwavering commitment to enjoy it with only our spouse within the context of marriage. So that's the first piece of wisdom for us from Proverbs. That could be a message in all and of itself, couldn't it? But there's a whole other piece we need to add to this. Brings us to the next things in Proverbs, which teaches us how we actually over value sex. Now here in this point, what I mean by that, what I mean by overvaluing it is that we overvalue sexual attractiveness or sexual uh, physical beauty. This is what I'm talking about here. We put too much of an emphasis, too much of a value on sexual attractiveness and physical beauty. And when we do this, I want us to see from Proverbs that we also not only dehumanize others, we even end up dehumanizing ourselves. So let's learn the way of wisdom because Proverbs wants to save us from this. And here again, uh, and this we've looked at a lot of scriptures already, so I want to do just one proverb here. And if you thought that last one was a little bit jarring, this one, this is really jarring, all right? You ready for this? Proverbs eleven twenty two. Don't turn me off till you've heard us talk about it, right? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now before you get offended... Listen to it, and I think you'll actually realize there's nothing offensive, and this is true wisdom. When this was written, it was part of a culture where women would wear nose rings as a sign of beauty, just like today women wear earrings and sometimes nose rings. But think of it like an earring in our culture. Now, why would a woman in ancient times, and why does a woman today, why would a woman today wear earrings? Why? To enhance beauty. That's the purpose of wearing an earring. And of course, the more expensive the earring, the more it does this. That's why we have diamond earrings that cost thousands of dollars. Now, imagine, now you're back in ancient times, imagine it's a nose ring, and it's made of solid gold, and let's just say it's even encrusted with diamonds. Imagine you were to take that nose ring, and instead of giving it to a princess or something, someone takes it, and they attach it to the snout on the nose of a pig. Now, what is a pig going to do with the nose ring? Really nothing. The pig's going to do what a pig does. It's going to stick its nose right down into the mud, into the dung. The, the nose ring's going to get covered in all the dung. It's maybe going to get totally wrecked uh, because a pig does not treat it properly. This is what's going on. Now imagine you were walking along and you saw a pig wallowing out down there in the mud and you saw there's a gold-encrusted gold ring around its nose. No one else is around you think, I'm going to go get that. Why is that on a pig's snout? I'm going to go get that nose ring for myself. You're, you're attracted to the, the beauty of it, and you want the wealth that comes with it. What's going to happen if you try to do that? Well, you're probably going to end up wrestling with the pig, and you're going to get covered in mud and dung, even if you do end up getting the ring. So what is this proverb saying then? This proverb is warning us about people who are Outwardly gorgeous, beautiful, handsome, but inwardly they have terrible character. It's a warning for each of us not to be that kind of person. And it's a warning not to allow yourself to go for that kind of person, to be attracted to that kind of person. Because if you go for someone strictly based upon their outward looks and they lack a lot of inward character, you will end up wrestling with them. And you will end up covered in mud and dung. Let's ponder this proverb a little more deeply. It's much more in this, I think, for us. A lot of wisdom here. This proverb also shows us one way that men overvalue sexual attractiveness, and it shows us one way that women typically overvalue sexual attractiveness. So, gentlemen, you're up first. Clench up. You're about to get punched in the gut. All right, you ready for this? Here it comes. Men overvalue sexual attractiveness when they evaluate women based mostly on their outward appearance. 
Men, you, we overvalue sexual attractiveness. We're not living a wise life when we evaluate women based almost entirely or mostly only on their outward appearance. Remember, that in this proverb, the ring is the symbol of the woman's outward beauty. And men can often evaluate women based almost solely on only their physical appearance. And here's the even more tragic part, the dehumanizing part. Women will tell you this, men, and you know it in your own hearts oftentimes, Men will treat women differently based upon their outward physical appearance. But this is not the way of wisdom. This is the way of the fool. This is the way to objectify women and to dehumanize them in the process. And men, this should not be so amongst us, especially not in the church. And of course, one of the, course, one of the biggest examples of how men do this is through the viewing or the addiction of pornography. I must tell you, I am deeply concerned for this next generation. Deeply concerned when you look at the stats on teenagers and young men and their use of pornography. Because all of that pornography is training their minds on how to think about women and sexuality. And listen carefully, guys. (laughs) This could not be a more perfect application of this proverb. Pornography is all about a woman's outward physical beauty and nothing, absolutely nothing about her inward character. It's all outward beauty. And of course, it's all a lie. It's all acting. So if you're looking at pornography, you are, if you're young and not married, you are actually already causing problems for your future marriage because you're developing expectations for what your sex life you think should be, and you're de- developing expectations for what a woman should look like, and when you get married, you're going to have a hard crash into reality when the acting isn't all there like what you watch on TV or on your computer or your phone. I'm greatly concerned, men, we've got to take this seriously, and you know it in your hearts, that this is not something that is healthy for us. It is not the way of wisdom. And if it's part of your marriage now and you're keeping it from your wife, then you know also that this is something that will destroy your life. Could there be a more practical subject for men today, and this is for women as well, if this is, if this is you in there, we just know it's pr- primarily a male problem, but it is not entirely a male problem. This problem is something that is destroying our lives. Dehumanizes us, dehumanizes the opposite sex, and the way of wisdom says we must not evaluate the opposite sex based upon their sexual attractiveness to us. This is not the way of wisdom. It is the way of the fool, and it's the way to bring ruin into your life. So if this is you, you got to take steps to putting all of this to death. That's what the scriptures say. It's not to manage it. It's to put it to death. you got to take the steps to deal with this in your life, lest it blow up your life. But it's not just men who overvalue sexual attractiveness. It's also women. So here's what we can say from this proverb about women. Women overvalue sexual attractiveness when they highly prioritize outward appearance over inward beauty. I've tried to be careful when I say that. When they highly, highly, not just, yeah, that's the key word, highly prioritize outward appearance over inward beauty. Again, what is this proverb saying? This is a woman who puts all of her emphasis on her outward physical beauty, on the nose ring, so that everyone will see the outward appearance and, and, and hide what's actually going on underneath. This, of course, also dehumanizes women. And women, I feel for you. Because we live in a society, I don't know if there's any society in the history of the world that has done more to place a high and overvalue outward physical appearance. The amount of images that you have to see, the amount of stuff that is out there, the pressure that this puts on women. We know this is literally crushing women, crushing them emotionally. And then, of course, we know that eating disorders are something that are literally killing women in the desire to be outwardly, physically attractive and beautiful, we're literally killing the women of our culture. That should show us we must not follow the path of the fool, the path of our culture when it comes to outward sexual attractiveness on these things for women. Yes, outward beauty is a good thing, but if we put it way up here, we're destroying ourselves. And then there's another way that women can do this as well. 
Some women use their sexual attractiveness to manipulate men. Do you know the name Megan Fox? She's an actress. She's a beautiful woman. Here's what she says. I think that sexuality is power for women. I think God or the universe or whatever you believe in gave men brute physical strength and gave women their sexuality. It's so easy to control men with it. So I don't know why I wouldn't embrace it and allow myself to be empowered by it. So you see, if you take that mentality, you're just feeding into the system, right? And so then the male problems in this area end up clashing with the female. And then the female problems end up clashing with the male. That's why the whole thing ends up being such a mess. But here's one other big application of this single Proverbs. We got the memory talk about this being a hard candy that you take all the sweetness out of it. Let's keep going. This one's got one more big piece for it. And that has to do with how you choose a marriage partner. So for this is for those of you who are single and thinking about choosing a marriage partner. One of the great problems, because we live in this society that we just talked about, is that so often single people will pass by like 90, 95% of potential spouses based solely upon physical attractiveness. Now, you need to be physically attracted to your spouse. That's an important part of a marriage relationship. But at the end of the day, listen carefully, a great marriage that lasts a lifetime and is filled with love and joy is based far more upon your inward character and your wife's or husband's inward character than upon your outward physical attractiveness. I mean, you should know this anyways. You're going to get older, and we're all going to get older and lose any youthful beauty we have anyways. So what are you going to do? Oh, boy, I was about to put an age mark on when you lose your beauty. I'm glad I checked myself right there because I could have gotten a lot of trouble. Whenever that happens in life, what are you going to do when you're still got to be married for a couple more decades after that? If it's old, if it's just physical attractiveness. No, a marriage has got to be built on friendship, on character, on all these type of things. Makes me think of a young Christian man I once knew. He'd been dating a wonderful Christian woman. For some time they were talking about marriage. I sat down with him because he had some concerns he wanted to share with me. And, and he, he just kind of confessed. He said, I, I am attracted uh, to my girlfriend and we're talking about marriage. But I've just really been struggling with this. I just feel like I, I want a really, really hot wife. Like, it's just it's something I'm kind of, I know maybe that sounds bad, but it's something that I'm wrestling with. And so I listened to him for a little while, but I really kind of felt like he was really overvaluing the physical attractiveness of his wife. And so being the wise counselor that I am and having many counseling courses under my belt, I gave this really wise piece of advice. I said to him, basically, I think you're being unrealistic. You're talking so much about wanting a hot wife, but let's be honest, you're not so hot yourself. See, counseling courses paid off, right? Now, I knew him enough to know that, that context. Sometimes you got to bring people down to earth and you just got to be blunt. Oh, and that, trust me, that popped the air balloon and he came crashing back down to earth. He still loved me. We continued on in the conversation. And I just talked about the importance of character in choosing his wife and integrity in all these matters. And he confessed that she did have all those things and he was attracted to her. And to make a long story short, he did marry her. <clears throat> and she has proved herself to be the incredible wife that he knew she was going to be, that I knew she was going to be, and she's proved it ever since. So on the one hand, here's the big picture of this second point. Well, really bringing everything together. On the one hand, we can undervalue sex. On the other hand, we can overvalue sex. And I trust that you can see when we do these things, it really just causes a mess of everything. And what Proverbs is trying to teach us is wisdom so that we don't ruin our life, so that we can enjoy the life that God gives us. But there are powerful forces at work underneath us. On the one hand, some of us have this deep desire to feel beautiful. To, and, and, we, and we feel we want that because we, wanna, we want to be loved by another. We want to be embraced. We want to be accepted. And we know that physical attractiveness can help that. But under it is this powerful desire to belong and to be loved by another. Others of us have a great desire to experience pleasure, to see beauty. And so that's why people give themselves over to things like pornography or hundreds of sexual relationships. It's in a pursuit to experience pleasure and to see beauty, to take in as much as we can. But we all know those things do not ultimately satisfy. 
So we're all just in this giant mess. How do we get out of this? Is there a way through it? Let's turn in the final place now to talk about this. How sex points us to ultimate love and pleasure. As we read on in the Bible, we see that sex and marriage, beauty and pleasure, are not just gifts of God. They are. But they're also meant to point us to something higher, to something greater. In fact, we could say that the entire Bible is the greatest love story ever told. It's the story of how God made us and loved us, how God lost us because we basically committed adultery on him and went chasing after all kinds of uh, other uh, experiences away from our true spouse. But what does God do? How does God respond when his spouse, that is us as humanity, cheats on him, turns our backs on him, commits all kinds of acts against him? What does he do? He does not reject us. Rather, he pursues us. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, God does what is huge, what is ultimately the greatest thing ever, to win back our love, which is to send his son to die for our sins, to to forgive us of all those things we have done wrong, to bring us back into the relationship with himself where he is the groom and we are his bride. In one sense, the Bible is the greatest love story ever told. You see, at the end of the the day, you and I need two things when it comes to our struggles with sex and with beauty. First of all, we need to hear something. And second of all, we need to see something. First of all, you need to hear something. Those, some of you need to hear something this morning. What you need to hear deeply down inside you is that you, through Jesus Christ, are loved forever. That you are loved forever. You see, at the root of so many of, of your problems is a deep insecurity within you. And, and what we often do in life is we have this deep insecurity, a lack of self-worth. We don't feel beautiful, don't feel accepted. And so then we pursue Things like sex and relationships and all that, thinking that if we can fill our lives with that, then we'll find the acceptance and the love and the belonging that we truly want. So much of sexual relationships is not even about sex. It's about the need to be accepted, the need to feel loved. That's what so much of that comes back to. And listen, this is where the message of Christianity, the message of the Bible, speaks to that deeper need that is in so many of us. And here's how it speaks. It says to you that God, out of love, sent his son into this world to win you to himself. And what did Jesus see when he looked upon you and I? Did he see a beautiful bride all dressed in white? No. He saw us in the ugliness of our sin, dirty in our sins, turned our backs, committing endless affairs with the world, with other gods and things, turning our back upon him. We were not beautiful in his eyes. But Jesus, when we were like that in our ugliness, it is precisely then that he loved us. He went to the cross and there he took all the ugliness of our sin upon himself. There he took upon himself all the consequences of our sin. He took it on himself and bore it in his body so that anyone who comes to him can be washed clean and dressed in the radiant robes of a bride to be presented beautiful before him. Jesus is the one who washes away your sin and makes you beautiful in his sight and takes you as his groom. And I've been at lots of weddings, trust me, in my life. And when, when that bride walks up the aisle, I always have to, as the pastor, tell, tell the groom, I'm like, if you get choked up, it's okay. And I have seen guys that are six, five rugby players, muscle-bound man, man, those kind of guys, that kind of guy. Guys like that completely fall, collapse into a puddle of tears and emotion. Why? Because their bride is so beautiful to them. And this is how Jesus views all who come to him. When you come to him and say, Jesus, forgive my sins, he makes you that pure and white bride. And he says, come, you are my beloved, and I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will love you forever. you got to work that down deep in your soul. That is what will deal with overvaluing sexual attractiveness, sexual beauty, or just giving yourselves to endless partners in the hopes that you'll find someone who will actually love you. Jesus is the groom 
who makes you beautiful and loves you forever. You need to hear that. Then secondly, you need to see something. You need to see something. Let's now talk about that other side. What, what's underneath all of the pornography, under all the lustful looks? Again, let's go deeper under this. What's under all of that is a desire to see beauty and to experience pleasure. That's what's under it. And the Bible says underneath it all, the desire to see beauty and experience pleasure is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's God who gave you that desire. And what lust does is lust comes in and says, I promise that if you follow me, I will give you your heart's desire. And listen, some of you really need to hear this point. Lust will provide you with pleasure. Admit that. It most certainly will provide you with pleasure. Ah, but only for a short time. Then as you are tasting the cheese, the click of the trap will spring. As you're eating the worm, the hook will find its place in your life. And then the guilt and the shame and the ruin will come upon you. Read Proverbs 5 of the young man who follows the woman, enjoys himself greatly, but it says her steps lead down into death. So yes, lust promises pleasure, and yes, it delivers, but only in the short terms. Its promises are ultimately lies. And Jesus says to you and I, if you want to know true beauty, see true beauty, and experience true pleasure, you need to put this to death. And Jesus knows how hard it is for us to do this. These are deep and powerful desires. And so Jesus, there's many ways we could talk about how to do this. But one of the greatest is that Jesus makes a promise to you and to me that there is a beauty, there is a pleasure that he promises to us that if we will forsake all the lustful type beauties, we will get this beauty. He tells us, makes us a promise that is just mind-blowing. It happens in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins his most famous sermon he ever preached by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you are someone who says, I am poor in spirit. I got nothing to offer God. I just got sin. Jesus, forgive my sins. He says, you're received. You get my kingdom. You're in. But then he continues on. He pronounces another great blessing. For those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they will be filled. That is, I want to live for you, Jesus. I find it hard, but I want to live for you. You'll be filled. And then the big one comes. Blessed are the pure in heart. What are they going to get? For they will see God. They will see God. Oh, Jesus is saying congratulations to you who are in the kingdom. You're pursuing purity of heart. You're seeking to put lust to death. You know what you're going to get, Jesus says? You're going to see God himself. And if you think things in this world are beautiful to look at, Imagine the source of all beauty. Because everything that's beautiful in this world is only a secondary thing. It's a created thing. Imagine looking upon beauty itself. That is to look into the face of God itself. All the pleasures that this world has to offer, they're all just created pleasures. Imagine being in the presence of he, whom the psalmist says there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. This is the promise. So when tempted to lust, when tempted to go down all these false trails, all these lies trails, this is what you say. You say to yourself, okay, lust, yeah, you promise that if I engage, if I look at this person, if I, I look at pornography or if I have this sexual relationship, you promise that I'll have pleasure. And you know what you say to lust in that moment? You say, you're right. You're right, you will give pleasure. But your pleasures, your promises of pleasure are all lies. Because you are actually seeking my ultimate ruin. But Jesus promises me a pleasure which you have no idea about. Jesus promises me beauty to look at something. And I want to look. I want to experience pleasure. But Jesus is promising me if I will put to death all these other things and pursue him, one day I'm going to see a beauty that is just going to leave me absolutely staggered. And I'm going to experience pleasures forevermore. And so I reject you, lust, and your short-term promises of pleasure because I want to have the greater promises of pleasure and the greater beauty that Jesus alone can give. So do you see it? Underneath it all, we want to feel a sense of self-worth. We want to feel beautiful. We want to know that we are loved and accepted. 
then listen, God has made you beautiful in Christ if you are a Christian. In him you are loved and accepted. We want to experience on a deep level beauty. We want to see beauty. We want to experience pleasure. And Jesus came to die for our sins that we might come to God. And that one day, as Revelation 22.5 says, they will see his face. And when you see the face of God one day, you'll be so grateful that you put to death all those other sins in this life because what you will see will just leave you staggered. And for all of eternity, you will enjoy pleasures at his right hand. Let's pray. Jesus, right now we want to lament the many ways that our own hearts have gone astray on the things we have talked about. So, Father, we pray right now for forgiveness. We confess our sins to you. And right now in your own heart, maybe just be specific. Confess sins that you have committed and said, Jesus, I walked off the path. I walked the path of the fool. Confess those before him. And Jesus says to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, we're grateful that through your blood we are cleansed and made clean. We're so grateful that when we were ugly in sin, you loved us. And through your death on the cross, you made us beautiful in your sight. Father, enable us to put all these things to death. Enable us to go deeper into your love for us that we'd find that true self-worth and acceptance in who you have made us to be. Jesus, we're grateful that as the book of Revelation says, you are the lamb who can unfold the scroll of history. You will make all of history come to its great conclusion when we will see the face of God. We long for that day when you will make things right. We long for the day when our desires will all be rightly ordered not wrongly ordered, when we will see your face and all will be right. So bring that day, Lord Jesus, and in the meantime, enable us to walk the path of wisdom. We ask this in your name. Amen.